We loved each other once, didn't we? I think it was love. And you made me very happy. And I could again. We just untied the knot. It was never broken. Illusions, of course, are by their nature sweet. Released in 1988, Danger Liaisons is that rare film adaptation in that it has two source materials. It is adapted from a play, Le Liaison Dangereuse, written by Christopher Hampton in 1985, which Hampton himself had adapted from a novel of the same name, first published in 1782 by Pierre Chaudelot de la Close. I can't understand how someone whose instincts are so generous could lead such a dissolute life. I'm afraid you have an exaggerated idea both of my generosity and of my depravity. Hampton's script was not the first version of Laclose's novel. Roger Vadim had updated the story from aristocratic pre-revolutionary France to the bourgeois milieu in the suburbs of late 1950s Paris. Besides that, Hampton's play had not been the first time the story had been adapted to the stage. In 1982, German playwright Heinrich Müller had mounted a radical version set in various times, including the French Revolution and after World War III. Since then, there has been a miniseries, two radio plays, two operas, two ballets, and even a novel written in tweets. And that is not to mention four subsequent film adaptations. Valmont, directed by Miloš Forman, and also set in 18th century France. Roger Cumble's Cruel Intentions, that updated the plot to 1990s New York, a South Korean version, Untold Scandal, that returns the plot to its 18th century origins, and a Chinese production liberally transposed to the 1930s. Just what is it about Laclose's novel that makes it so popular with dramatists? Or more pertinently, what is it about decadent aristocrats in pre-revolutionary France that has such a universal and timeless appeal? Pierre Chaudelot de Laclose was a 41-year-old officer in the French army when he set down, quill in hand, to write a novel that ended up causing a scandal. Its initial print was 2,000 copies, but so salacious was its content that it immediately attracted a wider readership. Within 10 days, a second edition was issued. By the time those 2,000 copies were sold, it was a sensation. Part of its popularity was due to its inflammatory content. Its devilish account of sexual engagements had the tongues wagging at the royal court as to whether the story had any basis in fact. If so, on whom did Laclos base his characters? No one, as it turned out, which may have disappointed some readers, but perhaps came as a relief to a few others. Does Cecile have a great many correspondents? Why do you ask? I went to her room at the beginning of this week. I simply knocked on the door and entered. She was stuffing an envelope into the top right-hand drawer of her bureau, in which I couldn't help noticing there seemed to be a large number of similar letters. Part of the reason why Laclos's story felt so vivid was due to his decision to unfold the plot exclusively in the form of letters. The epistolary novel was a popular form in the 18th century. Samuel Richardson used it in Pamela. Johann von Goethe mixed the form with autobiography to create The Sufferings of Young Werther. And even Jane Austen experimented with it, albeit unsuccessfully, for Lady Susan, which was not published until 50 years after her death. However, those authors each recognised that the epistolary form has a magnetic draw for readers making them feel privy to intimate letters being exchanged between private individuals. Certainly, members of King Louis XVI's court felt that they were reading, not fiction, but real correspondences passed secretly amongst friends. Hampton's play opened in the other place in Stratford-upon-Avon in September 1985, 
and such was its critical and commercial acclaim that within months it had switched to London's Barbican Centre, before then transferring to Broadway for a Tony award-winning run. On the back of that, Hollywood invited Hampton to adapt his play to the screen. But although Stephen Frears eventually directed it, he was not the studio's first choice. They initially approached Volker Schlondorf, who had enjoyed enormous success in 1979, when his adaptation of Gunter Grass's allegorical novel The Tin Drum shared the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. The producers were keen to get into production as quickly as possible, because Across Town, another adaptation of Laclose's novel, was in the works. This one to be directed by Milos Forman, who was fresh from having directed the multi-Oscar winning adaptation of another Tony Award winning play, Amadeus. Astounding. It was actually, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music. But they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. For whatever reason, Schlunderf stepped away from the production, and the invitation was then sent to Stephen Frears. This was Frears' first foray into Hollywood filmmaking, but he had already established himself as a director of sexually sophisticated dramas. The Joe Wharton biopic Prick Up Your Ears, the Oscar-nominated My Beautiful Laundrette, and the politically charged Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. Those latter two had been written by multi-award winning Hanif Qureshi, and given Frears' propensity to work with high-profile writers, Alan Bennett had penned the Orton picture, and more recently Stephen Knight, Peter Morgan, Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope, all of whom have been nominated for Oscars, WGAs and BAFTAs, you might be tempted to think that the strength of Frears' films lie not in his direction, but in their scripts. Here is Hampton speaking at a BFI screening, celebrating the film's 25th anniversary. Actually, people did say to me, uh, you know, who were sceptical, said... Uh, well, uh, we don't, you know, we don't see any evidence that Stephen Frears is the man to make a period picture. And I said, well, it's, it's, honestly, trust me, what you need for this particular subject is somebody who's not interested in making a period picture, who is interested in making this subject and not uh, all the frou-frou and all the stuff. To my mind, the result is one of the most finely balanced screenplays ever written. If that does not convince, take into account that it earned Hampton, amongst other awards, an Oscar, a WGA and a BAFTA. Here is Hampton once more. I adapted a number of my plays for, for the screen and they never seemed to work properly. It took me a long time to figure out how different the cinema is from the theatre. And by the time in the mid-80s that this happened, I'd done a year's work with Fred Zinnemann and I'd done a year's work with David Lean and I sort of was beginning to grasp that the <laughs> cinema made different demands. But in fact, I had to write... I wrote this screenplay in, in rather a panic because over our shoulder was the looming figure of um, Milos Forman. How does the script work? In his poem Ode to a Grecian Urn, John Keats told us that beauty is truth and truth beauty. But in Dangerous Liaisons, such beauty is not celebrated. Instead, it is revealed as a frailty, and worse, a mask concealing brutal deception. Set in the years before the French Revolution, it explores the shallow nature of a very vain, self-absorbed, short-sighted society. So there are lots of illusions in the film. 
One of the way production designers Stuart Craig and Gerard James displayed this was by way of mirrors. They are just one of many visual motifs that convey the story's themes. Once this pattern is established, it never lets up, with Hampton deftly arranging it like a parade, laying it out in a series of plots, each plot deftly echoing numerous subplots, each scene an opportunity to arrange the other motifs. Besides mirrors, you have, of course, letters. Letters being written, sealed, sent, intercepted, delivered and opened. And in addition to that, you get wordplay, glistening conceits and droll puns. Even composer George Fenton gets in on the act with the early morning call of a cuckoo. Period pictures often suffer from excessive costume design, but in this picture, they too are used as part of the film's visual theme, which is why James Atchison decks the characters out in so many robes, dresses, jackets and gowns that we know that while they are dressing for the day, they will be undressing for sex. Yet more motifs arrive in the shapes of keys, locks and doors, and secret passageways that lead to private boudoirs. And altogether, they suggest the themes of honesty and treachery, sincerity and duplicity, reality and illusion. In order to deliver those themes, Hampton's script had to allow for a series of structural and visual symmetries. All you have to do is look at the architecture of the era, and you will see its near obsession with balance and harmony all designed to distract its inhabitants from the utter hypocrisy of a society, obsessed with its appearance and in denial of its deception. I'm not suggesting that Hampton copied it, but another film, also set around the same time, also offers structural and visual symmetry, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of William Thackeray's Barry Lyndon. Sir Richard, this pistol must be faulty. I must have another one. I'm sorry, Lord Bullingdon, but you must first stand your ground and allow Mr. Lyndon his turn to fire. That is correct, Lord Bullingdon. Your pistol has fired and that counts as your shot. Symmetry suggests balance and that brings into play another of the conceits in Danger Liaisons. Balance indicates order, order suggests control, and while Kubrick's Barry Lyndon thinks he has control over his own life, so too are the characters in Danger Liaisons careening blindly towards bloody revolution. I say blindly because rather than being socially aware, the characters can barely see past the salons in which they sit in the morning, or the evenings for which they are planning. Instead, they just dine and wine, play cards, fake confessions, pledge devotions, and betray confidences. I'm afraid the key to the paradox lies in a certain weakness of character. I can't see how so thoughtful an act of charity could be described as weak. Because it was simply response to a strong new influence in my life. Yours. Many films examine events from around the globe in the years leading up to, as well as the French Revolution itself. And many of them share similar themes. Social injustice in A Tale of Two Cities. Decadence in Marie Antoinette. Religion in the Mission, Gender in the Duchess, and Idealism in Danton. But what draws Stephen Frears's film together is the vulgarity, vanity and venality of the two principal characters, the Marquise de Martoy, played by Glenn Close, and her former lover and current confidant, the Vicomte de Valmont, played by John Malkovich. The tagline on the film's poster perfectly synopsized those elements. Lust, seduction, revenge, the game as you have never seen it played before. 
But the way Hampton wrote it, Frears directed it, and the cast performed it, it is more than just a game. It is a contest. More accurately, it is a conflict waged between Martoy and Valmont. But their dueling weapons of choice are not muskets nor swords, but sex. I often wonder how you manage to invent yourself. Well, I had no choice, did I? I'm a woman. Women are obliged to be far more skillful than men. You can ruin our reputation and our life with a few well-chosen words. So, of course, I had to invent not only myself, but ways of escape no one has ever thought of before. And I've succeeded because I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. And as for those around them, they are pawns on the chessboard. And whatever injuries or fatalities occur, those are the rules of the game. But that sounds as though it were Hampton's intention to judge and condemn the characters. And if that were so, the story would feel smug and self-righteous. Thankfully, it avoids such arrogance by ever so gently nudging the scales of judgement against us. For it seems the more Martoy and Valmont indulge their vices, the more fascinating they appear to us. We revel in their debauchery while barely taking the time to admonish it, to the point that we all but lose sight of the catastrophes that befall their victims. The ingenues Cécile de Valange and Chevalier d'Anceny, played respectively by Uma Thurman and Keanu Reeves, and most tragic of all, Madame de Torvel, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Both Martoy and Valmont go about destroying her in the most bitter and cruel ways, targeting her precisely because of her virtue and chipping away at it until they finally unearth the one weakness she has, a pious belief that she cannot be corrupted. I want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her. Surely you understand that. I thought betrayal was your favourite word. No, no. Cruelty. I always think that has a nobler ring to it. One of Frears's many great decisions was to make sure that the scenes climaxed in luxurious close-up. That way he brought forth the psychological drama as well as avoiding the honeypot of so many period films. The wide shot that shows off the locations and costumes but relegates the actors to mere props. Here is Frears, also from the same BFI event. I wanted these very, very elaborate movements. And I, because I'd spent my life looking at the English theatre, it seemed to be quite unremarkable. But of course, the American actors couldn't do this. They simply couldn't make the scenes come to life in that very English theatrical way. So gradually, at the same time that I was facing defeat on this front, I started to realise, but the bits that are good are where they put the camera on the face. And in the end, I realised, oh, I see, this is what they're good at. This is what they're not so good at. Why don't I make a film of the good bits? Sometimes Hollywood films can be as simple as this. Find the two prettiest people in the story, put them in the same space, and by the end, ensure that they are kissing happily ever after. Dangerous Liaisons vigorously upends that tradition. We begin with the Marquise de Martoy sitting at her dresser. About to prepare herself for the day, she is the picture of authority and control, of personal contentment and private satisfaction. In a word, vanity. So vain is she that there is only one other person who can possibly match her, the Vicomte de Valmont. That he was once her lover suggests that they might once again re-engage. But such is his vanity that he never suspects for a moment that he is the real focus of her vengeance. So, as Martoy is dressed, so too is Valmont and as each layer of lace, crinoline and kerchiefs are applied, 
we see that their apparel is not designed to attract the opposite sex as much as it is to defend themselves against the other. This is a war between the sexes and they are dressing for battle. Almost everyone seems to wear a mask and that belies a society where people uphold virtue but really they prefer the vice. In the end of course the facade and the artifice have to come crashing down. So the keys unlock the doors, the letters are opened and the all so crucial mirrors are shattered. Having begun with Martoy so happily sitting in front of her looking glass, it ends fittingly once again with her sitting in her salon. This time at night, this time alone, she removes her makeup and without her meticulously created mask, she can no longer bear to look at herself. The screen begins to fade and the more makeup she takes off, the less there is to see, until eventually she is left without a face and vanishes into the darkness. <laughs>